Hi, welcome to the Hayek Auditorium. My name is Gene Healy. I'm a vice president here at Cato, and I'll be moderating today's, moderating today's panel on the politics and law of immigration. Uh, now, immigration, of course, is, uh, has been an extremely volatile and contentious issue throughout American history. It's bound up in questions of economic policy, social welfare, welfare policy, foreign relations, and so on. But uh, it's contentious mostly because it's uh, uh, immigration policy involves uh, decisions that involve American identity at the most uh, fundamental level. Who is going to constitute the people and we the people and what kind of people are the American people going to be? I get a sense of how contentious this issue was the one time I was dumb enough to venture into the immigration debates a few years ago uh, when I wrote an op-ed called Don't Militarize the Borders. And those of us who write on public policy are used to uh, strangers helpfully calling you and emailing you to, to let you know what a complete moron you are. Uh, but uh, I found with the immigration debate that's, uh, that, that the, the amount of heat to light uh, was, uh, was pretty high and the amount of abuse was was pretty striking. So my hat's off to people on, on each side of this debate uh, who spend much of their time writing about immigration issues because uh, I, I personally couldn't stand the abuse. Uh, immigration, uh, the immigration issue is as volatile as ever today uh, with the, uh, the Arizona law signed by Governor Jan Brewer that's put it back on the table of the center of a uh, national debate. Uh, with that law, uh, the opponents of that law have called it a show-us-your-papers statute, uh, which has been denied by the proponents of the law. Um, in any event, the law seems to uh, be broadly popular, uh, so much so that it's helped straight-talking Senator John McCain, in the, who's in the middle of a tough re-election fight, to get in touch with his inner border hawk. Uh, and there's been a lot of debate about the the, uh, the the some top Democratic officials are worried about the uh, Eric Holder and the Obama administration's lawsuit challenging the law. Uh, the administration, according to the Washington Post yesterday, thinks it will be of long-term that challenge will be of long-term political benefit. But today we'd like to use that law. Uh, we'll discuss some of the issues. Uh, uh, involved in uh, SB 1070, the Arizona Immigration Statute. But we'd like to use it all, all, as a jumping-off point, too, to get at some of the broader issues involved in immigration and to answer, uh, to debate the question of what should be done about uh, immigration policy in the United States. And I think we have a, a panel today that where, with which the uh, light to heat ratio will be higher than usual. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll shed some real light on some of these issues. Uh, and rather than get up before each speaker and introduce them individually, I'm just going to introduce them all right at the beginning uh, so the, the program can proceed smoothly. Uh, first up are my Cato colleagues, Dan Griswold and Tim Lynch. Dan is the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. And since joining Cato in 1997, he's been ubiquitous in the media. Uh, in the past life, he, 
He was an editorial page editor of a daily newspaper, the Colorado Springs Gazette, and a congressional press secretary. And he is the author of a new Cato book, Mad About Trade, Why Main Street America Should Embrace Globalization. I urge you to check that out. Uh, Tim, Tim Lynch, is the head of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice, uh, which uh, focuses on a a host of issues on the Bill of Rights and Civil Liberties, uh, the war on terrorism, over-criminalization, the drug war, the militarization of police tactics, and gun control, among others. In 2000, Tim served on the National Committee to Prevent Wrongful Executions, and he's the editor of a new collection from Cato called In the Name of Justice, Leading Experts Reexamine the Classic Article, The Aims of the Criminal Law. Uh, Finally, then, we'll hear from uh, Mark Krikorian, who's Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, a nonprofit public policy research organization that tends to train a skeptical eye towards uh, high levels of immigration. Uh, Mark is a blogger at National Review Online's popular The Corner weblog, and his latest book is The New Case Against Immigration, Both Legal and Illegal. And it argues that, quote, that although mass immigration once served our national interests in today's America, it weakens our common national identity, limits opportunities for upward mobility, threatens our security and sovereignty, strains resources for social programs, and disrupts middle-class norms of behavior. Uh, Dan, Tim, and Mark will have 15 minutes each for an opening statement, and then we'll go to our uh, lightning round of two-minute rebuttals from each. And I should uh, should give you guys fair warning up front, Uh, even though I'm a libertarian by conviction, I'm an authoritarian when it comes to time limits, Uh, I plan to hold you to the time limits, Uh, so just think of me as the... uh, the Sheriff Joe of policy debate here. Dan? Thank you very much, Gene, and thank you, everybody, for coming out today uh, to hear this discussion of a very important topic, and I hope uh, there is a lot of light uh, relative to heat, although I hope we have a little heat today, too. Uh, Tim will be examining the legal issues surrounding the Arizona law and the question Uh, of immigration in general. I want to talk about the broader implications of the Arizona law and what should we do about this vexing problem of illegal immigration. I understand the frustration behind the Arizona law. We have been advocating immigration reform here at Cato pretty much since I got here uh, 13 years ago. The difference is I want to expand opportunities for legal immigration. While I believe Mark and a lot of other restrictionists uh, don't care that much for legal immigration either and want to constrict that as well. And whether the Arizona law is constitutional or not, that's not my area. But I believe it is bad public policy. The law is an exercise in empty symbolism. It has already proven to be polarizing, and I predict it's going to do virtually nothing to reduce illegal immigration in the United States. It might chase those immigrants uh, to to other states or push them further uh, underground. This new law won't lower the crime rate in Arizona. It's not going to build any new houses. It's not going to boost the economy in Arizona. 
It is not going to create a single job except maybe for lawyers and police officers. In fact, the new law will probably do just the opposite. It may lead to higher crime, unemployment, and make the housing slump even worse than it would be without the law. Now, one of the clinching arguments uh, behind passage of SB 1070 in Arizona was the fear of crime and this belief that illegal immigration has fueled a crime wave in Arizona and this law is going to save the citizens of the state from it. Yet all the data point in the opposite direction. Violent crime in Phoenix last year plunged 17% from the year before. That's a decline three times greater than the nationwide decline in crime. According to the Phoenix Police Department, that downward trend has continued into 2010, despite what we hear on cable TV and talk radio. The first three months of 2010, uh, homicides were down 38% in Phoenix, robbery 27%. Arizona's other major cities reported similar drops in crime. Uh, kidnappings are also down. This is a, a strange kind of crime. The statistics are a little shadowy uh, on this. It appears to be the kind of crime, uh, an inside crime, affecting primarily drug traffickers uh, and uh, gang members, not the average Arizona citizen. Despite the popular fears, the crime rate in Arizona is the lowest it has been in 40 years. Uh, as I believe Tim will make clear, that the new law may actually make it more difficult for law enforcement officers in Arizona to combat real crime. Now, the, the new law will do nothing to stimulate Arizona's economy or create jobs uh, either. Low-skilled immigrants, legal and illegal, provided the necessary manpower that fueled Arizona's growth uh, before the recent uh, recession. There's no connection between unemployment and immigration. In fact, uh, just the opposite. In the 1990s in Arizona, as illegal immigration more than tripled, the unemployment rate dropped from 5 to 4%. Uh, from 2000 to 2007, the illegal population grew by another 200,000, and the unemployment rate, rate dropped further to 3.9%. Uh, since the recession began, the illegal population in Arizona has dropped by 100,000, and yet the unemployment rate has more than doubled uh, to 9%. The new law is already taking a toll on Arizona's economy by scaring away tourists and convention business. Uh, and when the state's economy begins to recover, the law will make it harder for Arizona companies to hire the workers they need to build new houses, harvest crops, and serve customers in retail and uh, food service. Low-skilled immigrants do impose additional costs on state and local governments. I think that's established. I don't deny that. But the critics exaggerate those costs, and they ignore the much greater economic benefits from allowing more legal immigrants uh, to enter the country, including low-skilled immigrants. Uh, last year, Cato published a study by uh, economist Peter Dixon and Maureen Rimmer that found that a robust uh, temporary worker program and legalization program after 10 years would increase the household incomes of American households by $180 billion a year. Uh, that general finding was confirmed by another study done by the Center for American Progress uh, earlier this year. The biggest gain came from, comes from something called the occupation mix effect. Low-skilled immigrants actually allow Americans to do more of what we're best at. Uh, they free us up to move up to jobs that are more productive and better uh, paying, increasing our, our income. Uh, 
It also raises the productivity of legalized workers, allowing them to produce more goods and services uh, for the money that we pay them, and we re realize the benefits. It allows us to capture money that's now wasted in smuggling fees uh, to be consumed in the domestic economy or, or collected by the government in terms of taxes and fees. It stimulates more investment, which also creates uh, more revenue for the government. Constricting, and in contrast, constricting the inflow of low-skilled immigrants exacts a cost on American households. According to our study, uh, about $80 billion a year would be lost to American households in income if we reduced uh, the presence of low-skilled immigrants uh, by 30%. Now, you just do the math. The difference between getting immigration policy right and getting it wrong is about a quarter of a trillion dollars. Now, last time I checked, that's still real money, uh, even here in Washington. The answer to illegal immigration is not to criminalize honest work, but to change our immigration system to meet the labor needs of a dynamic market economy. Uh, to solve the illegal immigration problem, first we have to understand why these low-skilled immigrants come here, legally or illegally. And like a lot of things, it's a story of demand and supply. Uh, low-skilled illegal immigrants uh, come here because there are jobs. In a typical year of normal growth in Arizona and across the country, we're creating hundreds of thousands of net new jobs in low-skilled categories, food processing, landscaping, uh, retailing, all those jobs. And meanwhile, the number of Americans who have traditionally filled those jobs continues to shrink. We're talking about uh, adult Americans without a high school diploma. Believe it or not, if you went back to the early 1960s, half of adult Americans in the workforce did not have high school diplomas. They were satisfied with these sorts of jobs as a career job. Not today. That number is well below 10% and dropping. In fact, the number of adults in the workforce uh, without a high school diploma has dropped by 3 million in the last decade. It's going to drop by another 2 or 3 million over the next decade. So you have this structural gap on the low end of the labor market, and immigrants fill that gap. Now, the problem is... There's no legal channel for a sufficient number of low-skilled immigrants to come in and fill those jobs, uh, and the result is widespread illegal immigration. We have tried a policy of enforcement only, and it's failed. If you go back to 1992, since 1992, we have increased funding on border enforcement by 700%. We've increased the number of agents, Border Patrol agents, on the southwest border five-fold, from 3,500 to 17,000. We built hundreds of miles of fence along the border, much of it across private uh, property. Yet the number of illegal immigrants in the United States has tripled over that time. And I say to my conservative friends, imagine a, oh, a federal education program where we've had that sort of dramatic increase in funding and personnel, and yet the problem hasn't gotten better, it's gotten worse. The only answer is comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Janet DiPolitano, former governor of Arizona, uh, has talked recently about a three-legged stool for immigration reform. And, and if any one of the legs are missing, it doesn't stand up. A temporary visa program to accommodate future labor needs of the country. Legalizing those who are already here. We're not talking amnesty. Uh, we're talking fines, back taxes, security checks, getting in line with everybody else if you want permanent status, and then smart enforcement for those people who still insist on operating 
outside the system. You know, in 1986, we passed something called immigration reform, the Immigration Reform and Control Act. It had two of the legs, right? It had an amnesty, and it had increased enforcement, but it made no provision for future flows. Here we are, more than 20 years later, wrestling with the same problem. Everybody agrees that was a failure. Let's not make that mistake again. And we know from experience that if you give a legal alternative to low-skilled immigrants, they'll take it. In the early 1950s, we were apprehending a million mostly Mexican illegal immigrants at the border a year. Congress did two things. They increased enforcement, but they also dramatically increased the number of visas available through the Bracero program. Illegal immigration, or at least apprehensions at the border, which is a good proxy, dropped by 95%. When that program was repealed in 1964, illegal immigration began to rise inexorably, and here we are today. Now, critics say we must get control of the border first before we can enact uh, comprehensive immigration reform. Well, first, we probably already have uh, the most control over the border than perhaps we've had in American history because of the resources we've poured into it. But secondly, it makes no logical sense to insist that a flawed and unenforceable law be fully enforced before we consider changing the law. It's like in 1932 arguing that we can't change prohibition until we crack down on every moonshiner and bootlegger out there. We need to get control of the illegal liquor industry before we repeal prohibition. No. Repealing prohibition allowed us to get control of the alcohol industry. It brought it above ground so that we could regulate and tax it. Uh, and I think the same would be true of the underground labor market. Now, in conclusion, uh, I'm in a magnanimous mood. I will also concede that we could get control of the borders and reduce illegal immigration through enforcement only. But at what cost? How many billions more do we need to spend? How many more agents do we need to station at the border? How many more factories and kitchens do we need to raid with, drums, with, sorry, with guns drawn? <clears throat> How many more miles of ugly fence do we need to build along the Rio Grande and along our border, much of it across private uh, property? And how many more liberties do American citizens need to surrender in the form of national ID cards, e-verify programs, all in the dubious cause of enforcing a law that is fundamentally out of step with the needs and the values of our great nation? There is a better way. We need to change our immigration law so that it reflects the needs of our economy and the choices made by millions of Americans and immigrants in the labor market every day. Comprehensive immigration reform, including a robust temporary worker program, is the key to securing our borders, safeguarding our liberties, and expanding the economy to create better-paying jobs for middle-class Americans. And, and I believe it's doable. There's an opportunity, probably not this year, I think the chance, chances don't exist this year, but perhaps next year for both parties to work together to solve this vexing national problem. Uh, don't take this personally, Mark, but the Republican leaders need to liberate themselves from the Lou Dobbs minority within the conservative Republican movement who oppose any kind of liberalization of immigration. Democratic leaders need to face down their labor union constituency who are opposed to any guest worker programs or temporary worker programs. 
I'm doubtful anything can be accomplished between now and November, but I think next year President Obama and a new Congress and a bipartisan majority uh, will have another opportunity to reform our immigration system and finally fix this problem of illegal immigration. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Um, my role this afternoon is to critique the Arizona law. And before I get to those provisions, I do want to go over some of the problems uh, on the border. Uh, George Will had a column a few weeks ago where he made the point that a lot of critics of the Arizona law have jumped to the conclusion that the Arizona statute is the product of racism and xenophobia. And he also said a lot of these critics live on the East Coast, and they do not have the experience of having illegal aliens moving through their backyards uh, in the middle of the night. I think those are fair points. Um, it has been estimated that there's about 450,000 uh, illegal aliens in the state of Arizona, and this does create real problems for the people who live in the communities down there. Um, imagine you get into a traffic accident, even a fender bender, and the other driver um, cannot speak English, doesn't have paperwork to exchange with you, and is quickly on his way. Or uh, a, a van full of illegals goes off the road by itself and hits a telephone pole. Uh, paramedics have to be dispatched. Hospital personnel needs to attend to their needs. Or, or perhaps in other situations, a member of your family is the victim of a crime due to the actions of an illegal immigrant. These are costs uh, involved with illegal immigration, and these costs are, are not uh, trivial. Now, it's true that all of these things can happen elsewhere in the United States, and they do. It happens in Chicago, Philadelphia, even here in the Washington, D.C. area. But I think it's also fair to say that these types of incidents happen with greater frequency down in the border area, Southern California, Arizona, Texas and New Mexico. Nevertheless, I think we need to pause, take a deep breath, and ask ourselves what is the proper remedy to these problems. I'm surprised by the number of people who I've encountered over the past few weeks when the discussion of Arizona's law comes up who says, well, we have to do something. Well, no. Uh, what we need to do is carefully consider what's right. If the Arizona law is going to create more problems than it solves, as I believe it will, then it is not the proper remedy we're all looking for. Now let me turn now to some of the specifics. Uh, the Arizona law is made up of many sections. Uh, we don't have time for a section-by-section -section analysis, and I don't think you want a section-by-section -section discussion this afternoon. But um, let me do say that some of these provisions are sensible. Uh, for example, there's one that says uh, any alien convicted of a crime uh, will not be uh, discharged and let go at the end of his sentence until the federal authorities are notified and they're given the opportunity to take custody and perhaps consider uh, deportation proceedings. But because my time is short, I am going to focus on the problem areas of the Arizona law, and there are at least four. One, the Arizona law is going to drive a wedge between the community and the police. When the local police involve themselves in immigration enforcement, crime victims are going to be more reluctant to come forward to report these crimes to the authorities because they are going to fear deportation. Women are going to be more reluctant to report rapes and beatings by abusive boyfriends. Families are going to be more reluctant to report robberies or kidnappings. 
students, adolescents in high schools are going to be more reluctant to report beatings and robberies because they fear the vulnerability of their parents should the authorities come to their household, learn about their vulnerability to deportation. Driving a wedge between the police and the public is going to make the community less safe. Second, we need to remember that police departments have scarce resources. That means they have to set priorities for their personnel. This is common sense. Homicides are more important than shoplifters, and so on. Why divert the personnel that are working to respond to and are working to solve violent crimes? Why take those agents off of their duties so that they can arrest and book people who have overstayed their work visa, people who pose no threat to others in the community? Police chiefs from Los Angeles, Houston, Philadelphia, Minneapolis, and I would also say the police chief of Tucson and the police chief in Phoenix, Arizona, Jack Harris, have all said that the Arizona law is going to make matters worse, not better. We should be listening to these police officials. Third, the Arizona law makes it a criminal offense for unauthorized aliens to engage in honest work. Now, this is one of the provisions of the Arizona law I don't think has gotten enough attention. Uh, picking a fruit in a field, it's now a crime. Painting, landscaping, washing cars, working as a maid to clean a house or an office, these are now criminal offenses in Arizona. The worry used to be, remember, that uh, people are coming across the border to take advantage of our generous welfare benefits. Now, the standard response to that used to be, no, the overwhelming majority of people are coming to the United States simply so that they can engage in honest work. But if honest work itself is now made a crime, what are going to be the effects of this law? I think we should call this provision the couch potato provision, because if it has any effect at all, it's going to drive people out of the workplace, and we're going to have people staying home and watching TV as they try to live on the earnings of one or two people in, in the household instead of going out and uh, working. This provision is very misguided and counterproductive. The fourth problem concerns the section of the Arizona law that I know you've all heard about, the one that deals with police stops and checks for immigration papers. This section, I think, is going to produce what those of us in the criminal law field call low-visibility police abuses. And the police abuses in this area are going to concern false arrests. Now, from previous lectures, I know when I use the term false arrest, most people conjure up the image of somebody in handcuffs down at the local jail or the local police station. Somebody is down there being arrested and they shouldn't have been. It's kind of a wrongful arrest. That is one scenario, but actually the legal doctrine of false arrest is much broader. It has been defined as compelling a person to go where he does not wish to go or compelling a person to stay where he does not wish to stay. When a false arrest claim gets into court, the judiciary basically looks to two questions. Was there coercion involved? And the coercion doesn't have to be actual physical force. It can be just intimidating people so that they think they don't have any choice. If coercion was involved, then the courts will ask whether or not the use of coercion was justified. Now, the police use stops and detentions all the time. If, it's, if they have a sufficient legal justification for the stop and detention, it's lawful, no problem. But when we get the local police involved in these immigration checks for citizenship and so forth, what's going to happen is they're going to use the old trick of blurring the distinction between a request 
and a demand or a police order for compliance with their uh, whatever they're seeking to do, whether they're seeking uh, to question somebody, they're going to give people the impression that they have no choice. Now, let me give you an example of that, how they blur the distinction. If a police officer comes up to me and says, let's see what's in that backpack, has he just asked for my voluntary cooperation to empty the contents, or was he ordering me to empty the contents? See how it's blurred? It's, it's not clear whether or not he was asking me or whether he was telling me to empty the contents. So what the courts do is they say the citizen has to step forward in those situations to clarify. So if I say, I'm sorry, officer, I don't consent to any searches, then the officer is either going to say, let me go, in which case there's no problem, or he's going to step up his demand and say, empty the contents right now. Now it's clear it's an order, or he's going to do it himself. Now, if the policeman has a legal justification for searching it, again, there's no legal problem. If he has probable cause to look what's in the uh, backpack, it's going to be lawful. If he doesn't have probable cause and he searches the backpack, then it's an illegal search. Now, I have a short film clip to show you a false arrest in the immigration context. This involves a driver who is coming up on a checkpoint, and he's going to be asked about uh, his citizenship uh, status. And um, it's not the most egregious uh, false uh, arrest in the world, but it, what the thing is is that these things are rarely captured on film. So that's why I think it will help you to understand this legal doctrine of false arrest is what I'm talking about. So if we could bring down the screen, we will show you this uh, short film clip. It's only about uh, four minutes long. The camera is in this person's car and he's approaching uh, the checkpoint. Soto. Is that your name, Agent R. Soto? Yes, sir. United States citizen, sir? Am I being detained, Agent Soto? Am I being detained, Agent Soto? I'm not. Am I free to go? Am I free to go, Agent Soto? I need to do Am I free to go, Agent Soto? I need to do an immigration. I have to do my job, sir. I have to do my job. Am I free to go, Agent Soto? Am I free to go, Agent Soto? You are the United States citizen, sir? Am I free to go, Agent Soto? You said I wasn't being detained. Am I free to go, Agent Soto? Are you the United States citizen, sir? Am I free to go, Agent Soto? Are you the United States citizen, sir? Are you refusing? Are you refusing to allow me to go, Agent Soto? I have authority to ask you. You are United States. Are you refusing to allow me to go on my way, Agent Soto? So can you stop over there in the second sir? Are you refusing to allow me to go on my way, Agent Soto? Can you stop over there? Are you refusing to allow me to go on my way, Agent Soto? Am I being detained, Agent Soto? Can you stop over there? Am I being detained, Agent Soto? Immigration inspection. You need to stop, sir. You are you are doing an instruction to my job, sir. Can you stop over there? Uh, 
why why are you directing me over to secondary agent Soto? You are you are making an instruction to my job, sir. You need to stop over there. This is an immigration inspection. Okay? Stop over there, sir. We got Agent T Gill, G I L L. Sir, can you stop over there? Sir, this is a, this is easy. Give me a call when you have a chance. I'm at the checkpoint. We have authority to stop you, sir, to to check your immigration status. Okay, sir, you need to stop over there. My supervisor, he'll be right. My supervisor's coming here right now. Am I free to go, Agent? You can pull there. Am I free to go, Agent D. Gilmore? Why aren't you allowing me to go on my way, Agent D. Gilmore? Park over there, are you going to hinder our progress? Agent, Agent Gilmore, am I free to go, Agent Gilmore? Answer the question if you're. Am I free to go, Agent Gilmore? With my supervisor as soon as he gets here. Am I free to go, Agent Gilmore? You haven't answered the question. Are you United States citizen? Why am I being detained, Agent Gilmore? You have not answered the question, sir. Why am I being detained, Agent Gilmore? You have not answered. What law requires me to answer your question, Agent Gilmore? Okay. Again, it's not the most egregious false arrest in the world, but the thing is, is that these situations are rarely captured on film, and I want to give you a sense as to what these confrontations uh, will be like when officers are asking people uh, for ID or asking them about their status. Uh, some quick points about this film clip. This is not a border crossing where people are required to show their passports. This is a checkpoint well inland. Okay, And the police in this situation, they do not have a warrant, they don't have probable cause, they don't have reasonable suspicion for a stop or detention. Instead, the police are trying real hard to make this all seem like a voluntary interaction. That's what they would say if this incident had gone into court. They would say, I asked the question, the person answered. Now, the thing is, is that this driver knows the law very well, and he was testing them to see if they would respect his right to decline the interaction and just go on his way. But the driver had to be very careful. He saw it, and I know it's kind of, if you see it for the first time, it seems very obnoxious, but the driver sought their explicit permission to let him go on his way because if he had just driven out, he's running the risk that he would be arrested for resistance or running the checkpoint. So he wanted to get their explicit permission on film that he, they were giving him, either allowing him to go on his way or they were asserting the power to detain him. This was no longer a, a voluntary situation. The police abused their power in this a little. He was eventually allowed to go through the checkpoint after a few more minutes of this back and forth. But my main point is that the police abused their power in this situation by not answering his question whether or not he was free to go. They also abused their power by threatening the driver with obstruction if he did not answer their question. So that's what comes up when some people say that these are voluntary encounters. There are these subtle hints like, look, you're obstructing my job. You're impeding my job. It's this subtle threat that if you don't answer the questions, there's going to be legal repercussions for you. And the police did this with somebody who really knew his legal rights, and they did this even though they knew they were being filmed. So I conclude that the Arizona law is going to produce many false arrests. Ninety-nine percent of these arrests, however, will not be captured on film. Is there a racial aspect to all of this? Yes, Hispanic Americans, they're going to bear the brunt uh, of these false arrest situations. Now, I've just got about a minute left, so let me sum up. 
One, to the extent that crime is a problem, why drive a wedge between the community and the police? Second, why divert limited police resources away from those agents who are working to solve violent crimes into arresting and booking people on immigration offenses, people who have overstayed their work visa? Three, why turn the criminal law uh, on those who are trying to engage in honest work? That's a distortion of the criminal sanction and, again, uh, diverts the police from the fight against violent crime. Four, as I've just said, I think the Arizona law is going to lead to scores of civil liberties abuses, mostly in the context of false arrests, and Hispanic Americans and Hispanic legal residents are going to bear the brunt uh, of these false arrests. So if the Arizona law is to be judged according to its actual consequences instead of its promised benefits, then I think we have to conclude that it's going to create more problems than it's going to solve. Thank you. Thanks to the Cato Institute for inviting me. Uh, I'm not sure whether I'm uh, here in the role of the uh, Christians in the Colosseum. Uh, hopefully I'll end up more like the lions and the Christians at the end of the uh, program. Uh, first, I'd like to say I'd really love to get a copy of this video because it's the best recruiting video I've ever seen for pro-immigration pro enforcement people I can imagine. A naturalized Mexican immigrant working for law enforcement being confronted by an obnoxious white lawyer. I mean, this is, you know, run this everywhere is all I can say. <clears throat> um, specifically to the topic, there's sort of two questions here, the macro and the micro issue. Um, the micro issue is specifically the Arizona law. It's a very modest law. It doesn't really do that much. I mean, it, it provides some additional tools for, for law enforcement, but not that much. It's just not that big a deal. The people framing it understood it wasn't that big a deal, and that's frankly why they were so surprised that it became a big deal, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, one of the reasons I think um, it passed is because the Arizona legislature had pretty much run out of other things to do related to enforcement that are within its power. Arizona had prohibited public benefits for illegal immigrants which is one of the first things that comes up. It's not really all that effective because it's not that many illegals using public benefits anyway, but it's the first thing that occurs to people. Well, then they passed an anti-smuggling law, which has been used uh, pretty effectively in some parts of the state uh, to prosecute not just the smugglers, but in the cases of illegal immigrants voluntarily sneaking across the border, the illegal aliens themselves because they're co-conspirators in the smuggling conspiracy because they've paid the smugglers. If they're kidnapped, that's a different thing. But um, the anti-smuggling law has been uh, a tool, again, one additional tool in the toolbox law enforcement's used in Arizona. In 2007, they passed an E-Verify law to make sure that all um, businesses in Arizona use the federal E-Verify system to determine whether new hires are in fact lying to their employers about who they are or not on, uh, as a condition of keeping your business license, something explicitly permitted in the federal law. And so my sense is, I mean, I have nothing to do, I really wasn't involved in any way in framing this, so I don't know the thinking of the sponsors of the law, but my sense is they sort of said, okay, now what else can we do? And they put this together, uh, the SB 1070, it was the result of that. And frankly, uh, Arizona's efforts at immigration enforcement, uh, state-specific immigration enforcement, have in fact worked. 
the Public Policy Institute of California, which is by no means a restrictionist outfit, to put it mildly, um, has done research suggesting that the number of illegals, the decline in the illegal population in Arizona, has in fact been greater than in other states, specifically due to Arizona's immigration enforcement. Now, some of those people may have moved to California or to Las Vegas or to Oklahoma instead, but, you know, that works for Arizona. Um, that's kind of the point. Uh, the fact is enforcement works, and it works even it works more broadly as well. My own Center for Immigration Studies did research on the total size of the illegal population nationwide. And our estimate was, and the Census Bureau followed us about six months later uh, with the same estimate based on the same data, um, they're a big bureaucracy, they move slower, I'm not making fun of them, that's just the way it is, that the illegal population peaked at about 12.7 million in August of 2007, right after the collapse of the amnesty debates in Congress, and began falling right after that when enforcement, when the Bush administration very reluctantly permitted enforcement of the immigration laws, at least to some degree. Uh, so before the recession, the illegal population was already starting to decline, and then it continued to decline, accelerated because of the recession. And last year, uh, May of last year is when the most recent estimates came out, the illegal population is below 11 million now, something like 10.8 million. So we've had a significant, you know, 10, maybe more like 15% decline in the illegal population, partly because of the economy, but partly because of enforcement. Enforcement works. Um, but the reason I think SB 1070 became such a big deal is a, 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 an intentional policy of the opponents of um, immigration enforcement and the supporters of amnesty. In other words, they felt the need to draw a line in the sand, and they felt the need to make an example of someplace. Now, like the, I don't know how many of you followed this uh, journalist controversy um, where the left-wing uh, reporters had this e private email list. Uh, it leaked out. And one of the um, uh, exchanges regarded Reverend Wright, the uh, radical black pastor, Obama's pastor for 20 years. And one of the writers said, the way to deal with this is we just need to pick somebody on the right, Fred Barnes, Karl Rove, whoever, who cares, and call them a racist and distract people's attention. That's essentially what we're seeing with Arizona. It could have been Nebraska. It could have been Delaware. Arizona's the obvious place because it's kind of ground zero in immigration. But in a sense, who cares where it was? They had to pick somewhere and make an example of it. And that's essentially what we've seen over the past several months, is they needed an Emanuel Goldstein, and Arizona became the subject of that two minutes hate. Um, and frankly, the lawsuit that the Justice Department filed kind of reflects that um, thinking because the lawsuit itself doesn't address any of the supposed objections that people made, mainly that it was racially discriminatory and what have you. Well, there's no reference to that in the Justice Department's lawsuit. In fact, what the Justice Department is claiming is that Arizona is preempted by federal law from doing this which is transparently false um, because it's simply reinforcing federal law. But more importantly, it claims the lawsuit doesn't even claim that Arizona is contradicting federal law, merely that it's incompatible with federal policy priorities. In other words, in English, the way you put that is that 
we've taken over the White House. We've decided to stop enforcing immigration laws. How dare you interfere with our priorities? The macro issue, though, and I want to get to that before my time runs out, is not the Arizona law itself. As I suggested with this line in the sand issue, the debate over the Arizona law isn't about the Arizona law. It's about do we have borders or not? Do we have border enforcement or not? That's what it's about. And the public support for the Arizona law, which has been consistent and strong despite the furious attacks on it by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Cato Institute and et cetera, um, doesn't, doesn't really reflect the public having gone through SB 1070, you know, the 15 pages of it, and said, well, I support this and I support that, so when the pollster calls me, I'm going to tell him I like it. No, obviously not. It reflects a general public, not just support for immigration enforcement, but a real frustration that it's not happening, a real uh, a, a credibility gap, if you will, on the part of the government. Nobody believes the federal government is actually committed to enforcing immigration laws. And essentially, the reaction to what Arizona has done is a public, is a public saying, finally, somebody's pushing back against the federal unwillingness to enforce immigration laws. It's similar to what you saw with California's Proposition 187. Uh, I mean, I have, you know, I have relatives in California who voted for it, and they said, well, you know, it's not the greatest thing in the world, but nobody, you know, we've got to send a message. Nobody's doing anything about this, and this is what we're doing. That's what I think the public sentiment represents. And this issue of credibility is the core of the political problem on immigration. The reason the immigration debate, the immigration law in 2007 failed was specifically because no one believed the promises that the immigration law would be enforced after this batch of illegal aliens was legalized. Um, the problem with the 1986 law is not that it didn't increase immigration enough. The problem was that the deal was amnesty in exchange for promises of future enforcement. The amnesty happened, the promises were abandoned, which of course they were going to be abandoned, but you know, the first time it was worth a try and see if it would work out differently. But as the old saying goes, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. The, the problem, even with guest worker schemes, is that no one believes that whatever the rules are, however generous and open they are, that there are still going to be rules, they still have to be enforced. No one believes that either Republicans or Democrats in the executive branch will actually enforce those rules. And with good reason, they don't believe it, because repeatedly the laws have, in fact, been ignored. In fact, you see what we have with our immigration system is a written immigration law that looks pretty tough, at least in a lot of respects, and then isn't enforced when push comes to shove. And this is a function of the elite public split over immigration. Elites don't believe in immigration enforcement, don't really believe in borders all that much. I mean, our elites are disproportionately post-national and post-American. And our public wants the immigration laws to be enforced. So to satisfy the public, we have laws that look tough on paper to satisfy interest groups, and I don't use that in a disparaging term, but just in a political science term, those groups that day-to-day -day work on immigration issues, all of them 
want loose enforcement. Therefore, we have laws that look tough, don't get enforced. That credibility gap is the key to moving beyond the um, stalemate on immigration. And frankly, I think the way you get beyond that is a kind of, you know, it's a cliche, but a kind of Nixon goes to China dynamic. In other words, only an immigration hawk can ever legalize illegal aliens. Only after four, five, six, seven years of real enforcement, and something we've never really tried, because all of the statistics that uh, Dan referred to mainly involved border enforcement, and that's good, but there's all kinds of other stuff that isn't being done, consciously isn't being done, because it would work. Only when you have that kind of enforcement, consistent across the board, unapologetic enforcement, do you then create the political space, potentially, for legalizing a much smaller, but likely more sympathetic, because more deeply rooted, illegal alien population at some point in the future. Let me just give you an example of the kinds of things we're not doing. Dan referred to increases in fencing, for instance. Yes, there's been more fencing. Um, and there's been more Border Patrol agents, and that's good. Uh, even now, we have 20,000 Border Patrol agents. It's still less than the NYPD's manpower. And this is to guard 7,000, maybe 7,500 miles of border when you include Alaska and the northern border. Even if you just include southern border, even if you think every Border Patrol agent is just focused on Mexico, you still end up with less than two agents per mile per shift. So the idea that we're somehow, you know, we've somehow fully staffed up the Border Patrol is itself absurd. But there are other things. Let me just give you one example. Most illegal immigrants who work work on the books. They've given a fake or stolen Social Security number, lied to their employers, committed perjury. They've committed a federal crime by signing an I-9 form. They've perjured themselves. So every illegal worker who's working on the books is, in fact, already committed a federal crime. Uh, and so the Social Security Administration knows who is, that knows that there are multiple workers on one Social Security number because they're getting uh, withholding from these, from the, uh, based on these numbers. So they know there's, say, five different jobs with five different names on this one Social Security number. They don't even send a letter to all five holders, all five people using these numbers, saying, folks, one of you guys really owns this number. The others don't. Will the, will the real U.S. citizen please stand up? They don't even do that. So the idea that we are somehow doing everything we could possibly do and we've done everything, we've tried enforcement, we've exhausted all possibilities, and we now need to resort to um, you know, giving up on enforcement, sort of ending prohibition in Dan's uh, um, uh, formulation, is simply baloney. I mean, the prohibition analogy is, uh, you know, is attractive for libertarians, but it's simply false. We don't prohibit immigration. We have, last year, we took in 1.1 million legal immigrants, we have something like 12 different guest worker programs. We have at any one time probably something like a million people working on some kind of non-immigrant visa. That's, that is to say a ostensibly temporary visa, although you know, there's nothing as permanent as a temporary worker. So the idea that that's somehow prohibition is ridiculous. Uh, if we were to, say, follow Dan's advice and we dramatically increase guest worker programs, we have another Bracero program. We take in, we let in, you know, um, 
you know, 5 million foreign workers a year. There's still going to be 50 million who don't qualify. Whatever standards we set, there's always going to be some standards. Uh, there are going to be criminal background standards or whatever. There's going to be various criteria that we're going to have to use. Those have to be enforced. If you're not willing to enforce the law now, no one is going to believe you're going to be willing to enforce those laws in the future. I don't believe it. The public doesn't believe it. And the burden of proof is on the people who are promoting higher, higher levels of immigration or amnesty to show in good faith that they're, that they're actually telling the truth. And that burden of proof has simply not been met yet. Thank you. Two-minute lightning round. Yes. Let me, let me just make some very, very brief points. Uh, it's very hard to prove whether illegal immigration has gone down because of the economy or because of increased enforcement. I think the economy has almost everything to do with it. In a way, I, I thought there was a contradiction in what Mark is saying. One hand, he says we've never really tried enforcement. He ridicules current enforcement efforts. And by the way, enforcement has primarily reduced the illegal population by one million or two million. No, uh, I think it's reduced because of uh, the economy. And Arizona was one of those states where the economy fell particularly hard because of the housing uh, uh, bust. That's why immigration there fell so much. Uh, I think we have a pretty, idea, pretty good idea of how many immigrants would come into the country under a legalization program because about half a million were coming in uh, without the program at a time when People like Mark would say we weren't doing anything to enforce a border, and it was true. If somebody was determined to get in, they could come in. The real answer is, uh, you know, in the last five or ten years, why weren't we getting five million illegal immigrants a year? It's because there aren't jobs for them. If there aren't jobs, they don't come. There aren't jobs during this recession, so they're not only not coming in net numbers, but they're, they're going home. So I think a temporary worker program that accommodated the revealed demand of the U.S. economy, about half a million in normal years, about half a million uh, temporary worker visas. And one of Mark's favorite lines is, nothing's as uh, permanent as a temporary worker. Well, that's not true. Most of the temporary workers do go back home. The traditional Mexican migration of the United States has been circular from the mid-'70s uh, uh, on when we had a kind of don't ask, don't tell policy on illegal immigration, 80% of them went back home. They want to go back home. So I think the, the, a temporary worker program is the only way that we're going to solve illegal immigration. Okay. Um, just two points. I think Mark brought up the point that the racism charge has been thrown around. I think that has been an, an unfortunate part of this debate. Uh, Look, there's been weak arguments made against the Arizona law. I think there's been some weak arguments in defense of it. That's what we were alluding to at the very beginning, saying that there's a lot of heat. But we we're hoping during this forum, you know, we could dispense with the weak arguments on both sides of the debate and get down to the more serious stuff. Um, back to the film clip for a second. Um, the reason I showed it is because is that if illegal immigrants had been discovered during that encounter, they would have been quickly deported, okay? It really wouldn't have been gone into court. The second thing is that 95% of Americans in that kind of situation would have probably started answering the questions about citizenship, right? It's like if you want to be on your way, you've got to start answering the questions. 
or you know you might face face arrest. So the people who had answered the questions or had shown ID in that situation and then they find out a few days or a week later, hey, I didn't have to produce that ID, they might get mad. But how many people are going to go out and hire a lawyer and file a lawsuit saying, hey, my rights were violated there? Very few people are going to do that. So the fact is that the legality of these types of checks is really only tested when you have like an obnoxious guy who's just going to stand there and test to get into this thing with the police. So it is unfortunate. I know it kind of comes across as, as obnoxious, but when he says, am I free to go, right there the test is made, and the police either have the justification to stop him, in which case it's fine, or they don't, and they didn't really have it there, and that's why they were evading answering his question, and that's what made it kind of an abuse of power. And again, these things are rarely captured on film. That's why uh, I think it kind of gives you a flavor as to how these types of uh, confrontations over ID will take place. I think a lot of people will end up answering the questions when they don't have to or producing ID when they don't have to, but it's, it's something that really gets tested in the courts, and, and they ought to be. Um, I just wanted to touch on one thing that um, uh, Dan just alluded to, this idea of the sort of revealed demand of the economy for foreign labor. Um, he said uh, the, the, we had about half a million illegal immigrants uh, a year before the recession. It was actually, I mean, it was a net increase of half a million in the yeah. illegal population. The total, the flow was actually eight to 900,000 a year. Most of the rest, in other words, the reason the flow is, the, the, uh, the flow is bigger than the, the increase in the stock is because um, about a quarter or more of each year's quote, legal, unquote, immigrants are, in fact, illegal aliens using the system to launder their status. In other words, they're not going home. They're just finagling a green card, and then the next batch of illegal immigrants are coming in behind them. But it, let's even say it's half a million. Um, that doesn't really reveal that much, because as limited as our, uh, as inadequate as our enforcement efforts still are, there is some enforcement. It's still not, I mean, it's still a, a, a sort of an effort to get here illegally and stay here illegally under the radar to some degree. Without immigration enforcement, even to the degree that we have, you would have significantly higher levels of inflows. You just would. I mean, there's no, there's no question about that. Um, I don't want to test it because, uh, you know, you'd end up with easily uh, double, triple, and over time it would sort of accelerate into dramatically higher levels of inflows. This is what President Bush had called for in January of 2004 when he gave his big immigration speech was unlimited immigration. Any, wor any worker from anywhere in the world willing to work at any wage, at any job, anywhere in the United States for any employer. Um, and, you know, the real problem, of course, the real threat that that program posed, if it were to happen, would be to Mexican immigrants because Mexican labor is actually pretty costly compared to Bangladeshi labor or Nigerian or Indonesian labor. So once something like that got going and sort of institutionalized, you would end up with essentially um, Mexicans being, Mexican illegals being pushed out of work, or not illegals, but guest workers, by much cheaper um, workers from Asia and Africa. And the numbers would dramatically increase as it snowballed over time. Great. Uh, we've got a, uh, we've got about half an hour for questions here. Uh, we've got a large crowd and uh, looks like a lot of interest. And so we'd like to get to a lot of questions. So uh, 
in this sort of situation, it's more important than ever not to be that kind of Washington person who, <laughs> who goes, comes to a conference, gets up ostensibly to ask a question, and ends up giving a speech. Uh, please wait for the, when I call on you, please wait for the microphone. Identify yourself, any affiliation if you want to, um, but ask a question. And uh, that way we'll be able to get to as many as, as possible. Uh, yes, sir, in the front row there. Uh, I'm Steve Block, uh, an attorney with the local ACLU. Uh, I wonder if the panelists would comment on the Secure Communities Program, and I'll let the panelists explain to the audience what that's about. <laughs> Nicely done. Well, Secure Communities is something that started in the previous administration, but this administration has really latched onto it. It represents what um, I think all of us have sort of agreed up here is uh, a good thing, which is institutionalizing a way of making sure that deportable aliens, either illegal immigrants in jail or legal immigrants who have made themselves deportable because of their crimes, are identified before the end of their sentences and are actually removed. Because right now, most deportable aliens in jail don't end up being deported because they're released because the Immigration Service just hasn't really put in place. I mean, they've gotten better at this. I'm not making fun of them, but it's, a, you know, it's a significant task. And um, they, what secured the Secure Communities Program is to try to institutionalize this so that they don't miss people. They don't release people onto the streets from jail who should be deported. And this administration has um, really made uh, it, the Secure Communities Program one of its you know, highlighted programs to show, look, we're not, you know, we're not wussy open borders types. We're really tough. We're going to make sure we deport all uh, deportable aliens in jail. Now, that having been said, it's a good thing. I mean, I'm all for it. Um, this administration is, is, is doing stuff that's negating the benefits of secure communities. But, I mean, i got to hand it to them. They're at least doing, you know, I mean, the glass is maybe a quarter full. And this is one of the, this is a little part of that quarter full glass. I think it's non-controversial that if uh, somebody here illegally commits a real crime that threatens the public safety, they've, uh, they, they, they should be deported. The question is, what, what's a real crime? I noticed Mark expanded it not just from working, but paying your Social Security taxes compounds the crime. <laughs> um, all the way in the back in the center. Hi, thank you. Uh, name's Jerry Lipson, uh, a retired staffer from the House International Relations Committee. And my question is to Mr. Lynch regarding his characterization of the Arizona law. And because, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding of the law as it applies to questioning someone on their immigration status is that the, is that the a person must already have been detained uh, uh, on another matter. For example, the police is pulled over because of a traffic violation or perhaps, you know, uh, some other criminal investigation. Only after that plausible detention, so to speak, uh, can the question of immigration status come up. Now, from the clips and from your characterization, that's not necessary, that, they can, that anyone can be asked their immigration status almost at any time. Could you please clarify that? Yes. Uh, 
anybody like leaving this auditorium today can be approached by a police officer out on the sidewalk, and he can ask you, I'm a police officer, I'm with the immigration unit, mind if we answer a few questions and ask you for ID about your citizenship. In the law, this is called a voluntary interaction. The Supreme Court has said there's nothing wrong with police officers trying to engage people in conversations. So if you go up and look at the Arizona law, if you just want to look up SB 1070 and look at the provision, you're right. It says, well, during such and such stop, you have to have reasonable suspicion. But there's, no, there's nothing against the law. There's no disincentive for the police officers to engage people uh, law in regard to questioning immigration status, as you just described, it is said that it simply mirrors federal law, because you just said, I can walk out and be, and be questioned. Uh, so, you know, right. why, where is Arizona law different from federal law? Thank, that's been longstanding, I understand. Thank you. Right. This point about, about voluntary or uh, police approaching us on, on the street can approach anybody here out on the sidewalk and start talking about uh, you know, a, a drug investigation or a murder investigation. If you want to stop and talk to them, that's fine. It's no problem. But if you say, I'm sorry, officer, I, like, I have somewhere else to be, and he lets you go, again, no problem. But if he starts asserting the power to detain you, that's where the rubber meets the road. Now, you said, what's different? Well, that has been the law before this Arizona law, and it's the law now. Now, the difference is that local law enforcement are now the whole thrust behind the Arizona law is we're going to get local police more involved in immigration enforcement. So there's going to be more of this in these citizen police interactions and questions about citizenship status. And that's what my point is, is that there's going to be more questioning of people about citizenship status. There's going to be more false arrests as a result. And the brunt of that is going to fall on Hispanic uh, Americans who live in Arizona. Yes, sir. Uh, two, two things I wanted to hear more about were um, illegal drugs and uh, the economy of Mexico. And I think, from my perspective, they belong in the debate, but maybe from your perspective, they don't. So. Well, they're big, the big subjects. Uh, Tim, Tim has written and talked a lot about the, the war on drugs, and they really are two, two separate issues that are somewhat – uh, inter intertwined uh, at, at the border. The Mexican economy, <clears throat> there's a belief that uh, if, if the Mexican economy grew more rapidly, there'd be less push factors bringing them here to the United States. And I think there's some truth to that. <clears throat> uh, I do think that uh, there were some uh, false promises made, say, around the North American Free Trade Agreement. If we passed it, everything would be fine in Mexico and they wouldn't uh, come here. Uh, the wage uh, differentials exist, although the, the, the analysis of immigration is wages don't have to be equal to stop immigration. They just have to be within range of each other like two or three times rather than seven times, and the, the immigration will slow. The other thing going on in Mexico is a plunge in the birth rate. Uh, Forty years ago, Mexico had a very high birth rate of like six children per woman. Now it's rapidly approaching uh, just replacement uh, level. So I think the demographic and the economic factors that have been pushing immigrants out of Mexico uh, are, uh, are going to lessen uh, in the coming years. 
Um, I have a couple thoughts on that. Um, on the drug issue, I mean, I'm sympathetic to at least some drug legalization. I mean, marijuana, that's a personal view. It's nothing to do with CIS. But it doesn't really matter because it's not, you're not going to fix anything at the border um, even if you have undertake some kind of partial legalization. And even that would take years to work itself out through our federal system. States would have to change their own laws. States would have to come up with DUI laws for marijuana use. In other words, it would take 20 years for anything like that to work. It's not going to there's, – there's no drug-related solution to the border. Border enforcement is going to have to continue no matter what. And as far as Mexico goes, um, I think Dan is right about NAFTA having been overpromised. In fact, the only reason NAFTA passed, the only reason, is that a sufficient number of Republicans believed it was an immigration control measure. Without that, it simply wouldn't have passed, period. Um, and the problem is that not only was it overpromised that it would somehow fix everything, wages would go up and it would become like Norway or Japan or something, but rather it is even a more is a structural problem. Development, as NAFTA was supposed to promote in Mexico, economic development, push extra farmers off the land into the cities, they work in factories. That creates more migration pressures. In fact, in other words, the point is that NAFTA needed to have been accompanied by very strict immigration controls, so those extra farmers being pushed off the land would have gone to Mexico's cities instead of our cities. So it wasn't just an issue of overpromising, it was a fundamental misunderstanding of what NAFTA was going to do. And finally, I mean, I won't talk about the birth rate issue. Well, I will, just very briefly. South Korea, Russia have below replacement fertility and yet send large numbers of immigrants. There's no immediate relationship between fertility and immigration. And finally, the real thing that's going on in Mexico is a low-level, multi-sided civil war. Um, and that's, I think, one of the things that really is driving the concern in Arizona is that that, that civil war the beheadings, the car bombings, the rest of it is going to spill over, uh, and they want to try to cut that off before it happens. Uh, in the back there? You. Thanks. Um, Mark Rosenblum, Migration Policy Institute. Um, I want to uh, sort of push back on a couple of Mark's points, and I'm going to try to phrase my statement as a question. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think it's important to um, challenge this assertion that the Obama administration has not been serious about enforcement when there were 390,000 removals from the interior, which is you know, a record, and they're on pace to do 400,000 removals. So you can, I suppose, argue that he's not substantially more serious than Bush was, but but He's clearly, you know, at least as serious as, as any previous administration. And I think with the expansion of E-Verify and secure communities and 287G programs, you know, I think it's, it's hard to argue that, that – I mean, I think it's easy to argue that he's at least as serious and probably more serious. Uh, but the, but so, so that's one point. Um, and then I also want to – you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, that there's ample numbers of legal visas available. And I agree with your number of about 1 million um, legal immigrants a year uh, – in, you know, in, a, in a typical year. But it's important to recognize that almost none of those visas are available for most employers who currently hire unauthorized immigrants because there is no long-term... There's, there's a total of 5,000 permanent visas available for low-skilled workers. Uh, there is no guest worker program for permanent workers and workers outside of agriculture. The only low-skilled guest worker programs are in agriculture and the H-2B for temporary workers. So if you are you know, a restaurant owner or a construction, you know, site manager or a factory owner or any of the employers in almost all of the businesses that employ unauthorized immigrants, 
there is no green card you can apply for. So we can have a debate about, you know, what's the right number of immigrants and, you know, at what point, uh, you know, wages would go up so much that the jobs would get offshored or the employers would, you know, <clears throat> that they couldn't afford to hire somebody. And at what point you might see U.S. workers take those jobs. But it's not correct that those employers currently can apply for, you know, an immigrant worker. So that's where the structural demand for unauthorized immigration comes from. So, you know, in terms of addressing your credibility gap, the way we Any response to those uh, points, Mark? Okay, just, sure. Just, just in 10 seconds. The way you create the conditions for enforcement to succeed is to, you know, match supply and demand. So, so you know, I'd like um, to respond to that. Yeah. The, um, let me address the first issue first, that Obama's not serious about enforcement. Um, the removals were, in fact, at a record level for FY09, one-third of which was under the Bush administration. And, in fact, removals had dropped so precipitously in FY10 that the Immigration Service hurriedly set quotas for deportations in order to get the numbers back up because they didn't want a story in the Washington Post once the, the FY2010 numbers came out that deportations had collapsed. So, um, uh, so I mean, I'm not saying that Obama has, is satisfying every wet dream of the open borders, folks. He's clearly not. But um, he would like to. He just realizes he can't. Now, I will concede, though, that the center of the debate on enforcement has, in fact, shifted in a more hawkish direction. And let me give you a quick example of that. Ten years ago, the Clinton administration, or a guy in the INS back then, came up with something called Operation Vanguard. What they did was he said, look, we're, this was the guy who was the charge of INS in the whole central part of the country. And he said, look, you know, we're surrounding the Denny's and arresting all the dishwashers and then leaving. It's not doing any good. Let's go after a whole industry in a region and, and audit their personnel records instead of raiding them and then keep doing it every two or three months to wean them off of illegal labor. Went after all the meat packers in Nebraska. It's a good idea. They did it once. 4,000 names came up as probably illegal. 3,000 were, in fact, illegal, ran off, and never came back. They never did it again because everybody went berserk, the, the meat packers, the, the ranchers, the politicians, and the guy was fired. He was, they forced Re Janet Reno to fire the guy who thought up this audit program. Well, the Obama administration's fallback strategy now is to do audits instead of raids. So, in other words, what they've done is they've moved back from what the tail end of the Bush administration they were doing. But in a sense, there has been a ratchet effect toward tougher enforcement. So to that degree, you're right. Um, the, the center of the debate has moved, but it's only moved because of 10 years of constant public pressure in the direction of enforcement. And even then, we've only moved, you know, the ball a tiny bit, a few yards in the right direction. So, uh, you know, I mean, I concede part of your point, but without the, the open borders catastrophe of the 2007 debate, without 10 years of solid public and immigration hawk pressure, you would, in fact, see this White House doing what the open borders folks would really want it to do. Let me just, I mean... Anybody else? Well, I'll just say we have tried all sorts of enforcement measures with uh, in border enforcement with increasing uh, commitment of resources and agents. Interior enforcement, some years we've pushed hard, some years we haven't. It doesn't make any difference. 
I think the bottom line is we have done an, an honest, expensive try at enforcement, and it's been a failure. It's time to change policy, change the law, let's accommodate more legal immigration, and then we can train our enforcement resources, if you choose to do this, against the drug smugglers and against uh, other people committing uh, real crimes and stop committing our federal and state and now local resources to tracking down uh, dishwashers and gardeners. So the Cato Institute is in favor of the drug war. No, I just said <laughs> if you want to do that, okay. you can do it. Yes, ma'am. Right, you. Yeah. Um, thank you. My name is Luciana, and I just want to thank the panel for their time. Um, my question is going to be direct, directed to Mr. Krikorian. Um, I, uh, you mentioned that um, the Arizona law came about as a public, popular public response to federal inadequacies. And we can argue about whether the federal government has been doing their job or not. But something that caught my attention was that idea that we should rely, we should shape public policy based on uh, the majority or a majority opinion and enlarge uh, and, and really, in large measure, an uninformed majority, because I'm willing to bet that a lot of those people don't understand or are not in, you know, not uh, well informed on the intricacies of immigration reform. Okay. Um, now, some of the lowest points in our country's history have come based on these sorts of actions. Um, recall, for example, there's many examples, but recall for one, one example, uh, Japanese detention camps after World War II. That was a pop popular response um, to... Uh, so, well, so to I, and I get the oh. question. I get the question. Should, in other words, should majorities in a democracy determine policy? Uh, who gets to determine whether they're informed? Frankly, Democracy is based on majority rule. Obviously, the founders understood that majorities can be fickle. Majorities can um, be uh, directed by inappropriate passions, which is why we have two houses in a legislature, which is why we have a Senate that can bollocks up legislation, which is why we have a president who can veto legislation. All of those things are essential parts in mediating democracy and preventing um, tyrannical majorities from doing things they shouldn't be doing. But at the end of the day, the whole point of government by consent of the governed is that the governed, if they're insistent enough and stick to what they really want and, oh, and jump through the various hoops that our constitutional system throws in their way, ultimately get their way. And anything other than that is simply not democracy. I mean, that's just the way it is. If you don't like majority rule, you've got to find a country that has a majority you're more com com comfortable with. Or you work to persuade the majority that you're right. But if you fail to persuade them of that, that's the way it is. I mean, that's, you know, it's too bad. That's you, you, the whole point of living in a democracy is that when you lose, you accept it and then keep fighting within the system to change it. You know, I just want to weigh in for a second. We can parse the polls uh, all, all we want, but, you know, they majorities have been shown to support comprehensive immigration reform. If you word it in a way that isn't inflammatory and talking about amnesty and all that, but just describe what comprehensive reform would actually do, 
you can get a majority of people supporting it. We know we can get a majority of senators in the U.S. Senate to support uh, a, a version of it. You also have an intensity issue. I don't think a majority of Americans are consumed by the immigration issue, and they're not intensely opposed to immigration. But those who are intensely opposed to immigration, they fund Mark's organization. They also jam up the phone lines on Capitol Hill. They call in to talk radio. Believe me, I've felt their heat over the phone lines. Uh, <clears throat> they dominate the cable uh, TV d d discussions. But they do not reflect the majority view of, of the Americans. And our system of government, my two colleagues here are much better able to weigh in on this, but our system of government was not meant to reflect uh, a majority opinion in the heat of the moment. In fact, our founding fathers were pretty terrified of, of that prospect. Just the crime issue is an example. Majority has this perception that illegal immigration has unleashed a crime wave in Arizona. I just spent 20 minutes going to the Department of Justice and looking at the crime figures, and it couldn't be further from the truth. And I think there's an example of the dangers of following sort of talk radio sentiment in crafting policy. Can I make a quick response? I'm actually sort of agreeing to some degree with what Dan said. I think the public could, in fact, be induced to go along with legalizing illegal aliens. I mean, I don't think the public is uh, sort of unmovably opposed to amnesty, at least for illegal immigrants who could be demonstrated to sort of be worthy of it. The problem is they don't believe that there won't be another 11 million illegal aliens down the road. If the public were actually, frankly, if I were actually persuaded that, in fact, we would not have uh, further high levels of illegal immigration after an amnesty, I'd even be for an amnesty. But there is no way under the way, the way our political system works now, the, the people who are determining immigration policy, there is no way it can happen that way. It simply won't. Everybody knows it won't happen, and that's why the public is resistant to the reality of amnesty as opposed to the theoretical possibility of it. Let's take one final question. Um, Bill. <laughs> Well, he's the president, so. <laughs> Would you be concerned about more open borders if we had an effective border around the welfare state? If we, oh. And if, if, if you were, uh, why? Um, two points. One, if I were better looking, Cindy Crawford would go out with me. Um, the fact is, reality is what it is. And there is no such thing as a border around the welfare state. It is a, 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 a some sort of significant, extensive system of social provision for the poor is an inherent characteristic of modern societies. I'm just empirically making that statement. There are no real exceptions. Even Japan, which has a pretty limited welfare state, is moving, in the, moving toward expanding it. But in a society like ours especially, which is not ethnically homogenous, which, has, which is much more anonymous and um, particularistic, the, the, the welfare state is not going away. And if you want to say, well, there's nothing wrong with immigration that ending welfare won't fix, I'm even willing to entertain that. End the welfare state first, then we'll talk about immigration. For me, this is... A very tight border against people who come here uh, 
from abroad. We tried that in numbers two things. We tried it in 1996. We did a social experiment, one of the most extensive social experiments in American history, to actually test that very proposition, and it failed. One, Congress rolled back stuff very quickly, made all kinds of exceptions. Two, almost every state picked up the slack that the federal government had dropped, so the taxpayers were on the hook anyway. Three, the groups that had the highest welfare use had the highest naturalization rates to make sure that they could end up then getting welfare because they were then U.S. citizens. Four, much of the welfare benefit, welfare cost driven by immigration comes from the U.S.-born kids of um, immigrants, legal or illegal, and therefore you'd end up in this scenario having to end automatic citizenship at birth as well, at least for illegal immigrants. And five, the real problem is not even illegality, it's low levels of skill and education in a modern post-industrial economy. Immigrants work. They work at higher rates, not dramatically higher, but significantly higher rates than Americans. Immigrants on welfare work. Almost all families collecting welfare have at least one member working. The problem is, in a modern society like ours, if you've got a third-grade education, you are going to be earning so little money that you're going to qualify for all kinds of welfare programs anyway. The problem is low-skilled immigration, not legality or illegality, or even the ability to wall them off, which we're not going to be able to do. We should not let our welfare state stop us from enacting sensible market-oriented immigration reform. I think opponents of immigration exaggerate the welfare and fiscal impacts of low-skilled immigrants. Those those impacts are there. I mean, our system is just designed uh, that low-skilled, low-wage people don't pay very many taxes, they're going to qualify for more programs, and low-skilled immigrants are the same, and even to an extent, uh, low-skilled illegal immigrants are. Dixon-Rimmer study that we published last year, it's right there. It's a negative 0.17% of income because of the fiscal drain of low-skilled immigrants. But that's overwhelmed by a much larger, broader positive economic benefit from allowing immigrants in. There have been some uh, uh, more particular studies on the impact of low-skilled immigrants on the welfare state. Uh, the RAND Corporation did one uh, two or three years ago on health care, and it found that illegal immigrants accounted for a very small percentage of expenditures, uh, of public expenditures uh, on health care. K-12 through education, if you look at the percentage of uh, kids enrolled in K-12 through education, it's lower than it was when I was in grade school and the baby boomers were moving through the system. They're not fueling some explosion of, uh, uh, of K-12. through and so, and then finally, <clears throat> this idea that we're importing uh, uh, poverty. If you look, I've written some papers on this. You can find them all at cato.org. What you find is we're, we're actually creating a more functional underclass. Uh, we're swapping out uh, native-born, low-income, underclass people, most of them without a high school di- diploma, and it's increasingly becoming Hispanic and immigrant. And what that means is they're still on low wages, but they're much more inclined to work. They have a higher working percentage. They're, mu- they're less inclined to commit crime. So we have a more functional uh, underclass, if you will, uh, because of immigration. We're, we're better off with low-skilled immigrants being able to come into the country. I just have qu- quick points. First of all, the point of immigration is not to import a better class of underclass, number one. Number two, the immigrants themselves are experiencing the same problems as American underclass. In other words, they're not supermen or something that is somehow given us this moral, this family values booster shot. Um, illegitimacy among immigrants is uh, something like 42 percent. 
among Hispanic native-born, the children and grandchildren of immigrants, it's now something like 52%. Um, well, the majority of families headed by a Mexican immigrant use at least one major welfare program. They're becoming the, assimilated. Yes, but that's my point. That's exactly my point. Immigrants aren't supermen. They're not objects that we import in order to somehow you know, improve our underclass. They're people, and they experience the same kind of dislocations and problems that modernity creates for American high school dropouts. It creates those same kinds of dislocations for even greater, probably, for foreign high school They have a different perspective. They appreciate the opportunities that this country offers. They They, do indeed. And their kids... The Hubble masses who came in 100 years ago were also looked down upon as an underclass. And their kids... They're the great American... Their kids, though, don't view themselves... They don't compare... The immigrants themselves do, in fact, compare themselves to their lot in the old country. You see this with Islamic immigration in Europe, where the radicalism you're seeing now doesn't come, uh, by and large, from the immigrant generation. Some guy who moved with his wife from Pakistan 40 years ago, he's looking at Liverpool or Birmingham and saying, boy, you know, this beats the heck out of the dump I used to live in. But his kids aren't comparing their lot to the old country, whether it's in Salvador or Pakistan. They're comparing their lot to other Americans, and that's where the alienation and disaffection and and sort of underclass um, problems uh, are manifesting. Well, Mark, we, we both can't get in the last word, but there's a big... <laughs> <laughs> well, you're employed here. You, you get to have the last This word. is my institute, not yours. Uh, there's, there's, there's a world of difference between the immigrants in Europe and the United States. And immigrant, immigrant second and third generation immigrants uh, assimilate a lot better here than they do there. So I think bringing up the issue of... Uh, a Pakistani second-generation immigrants in Liverpool doesn't help. <laughs> all right. Lunch beckons, and the debate, I'm sure, will continue. Thank you all. It was fun.